Let's pray as we prepare to open God's word together. Father, in this, our final uh, sermon in this series on the book of Ruth, our prayer, Lord, is that you would continue by your Holy Spirit to use this portion of your word, this wonderful book called Ruth, to transform and change each of us increasingly into the image of your son. Lord, work in us, in our lives, in our day-to-day, increasing hesed, increasing kindness to our neighbors. We know that this glorifies and brings pleasure to you, Lord, and it benefits our neighbor. It benefits us. It benefits uh, the, the building of a better world. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us today as we look at this final text and continue to nudge us toward this book over coming weeks and months, reminding us of your goodness and the things that you require from us in the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning uh, marks the close of our 12-week sermon series on this little book of Ruth. There have been many uh, great themes uh, that have cropped up and arisen from our study in this book, and some of the great themes that I hope have become apparent uh, and have become sort of deeper in our thinking and in our hearts over the course of these weeks are themes like these. First of all, of course, redemption, major theme in the book of Ruth, kindness, chesed, the doing of kindness, loving kindness, and then, of course, the hidden providences of God, the hidden providences of God, all the ways that God has worked implicitly in the book of Ruth, and of course a couple times explicitly as well. And I hope that now as the story ends, that we can now see clearly the links, the links in the chain that God orchestrated sovereignly throughout the book. So think of this with me for a minute. The initial chain link in the story of Ruth was the famine. The famine then brought about the next chain in the link, which was the movement of Elimelech's entire family from Judah into Moab. So the famine and then the movement. And then that second link was linked further with the deaths of all three males in the family, more importantly, the return of Ruth the Moabite with Naomi to Judah, and then the next link in the chain had been Ruth's marriage to Boaz, which was followed in turn by a fifth link in the chain, the birth of Obed, followed in turn by a sixth link, the birth of Jesse, and then the seventh link, the birth of David. And then, finally, centuries later, the ultimate final link, the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in that entire chain, going from the famine in the land, uh, uh, famine in the land of Judah during the time of Judges, uh, to the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, We can see, I hope, the glory, the glory of God's sovereign hand guiding and steering events as he does in human lives, guiding and steering events and circumstances at every single point. 
Well, this morning we arrive at our final passage in the book of Ruth, which is Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. What I want us to just kind of pause on here for a moment to take notice of is this, that the book of Ruth began with a sudden onslaught of six personal names. So in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we were given the names, right as the book opened, Elimelech, Naomi, Machlon, Kilion, Orpah, and Ruth. Six personal names in short order, in rapid succession as the book opened. Well, now, as the book ends, on the other side of the book ends, we are given a sudden flurry of ten names. Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David. So then, the point is, there is a focus. There's a focus both at the beginning of the book of Ruth and at the end, a purposeful focus on people, on families of people, on seed, on lineage, on genealogy. I think we mentioned this in the first sermon, but I'm going to say it again. The two books leading up to Ruth in, in the canon of Scripture, so Joshua and Judges, those books are largely focused on the issue of land. The taking of the land, the securing of the land, the distribution of the land. Land, of course, being one of the major promises in God's covenant with Abraham. But then the book of Ruth, which follows on the heels of Joshua and Judges, this little book focuses on the people side of the Abrahamic covenant, the issue of seed, lineage. And so we have all these names of people, both at the start of the book of Ruth and at the end of the book as well. Now, as we begin to look at this genealogy here that closes the book of Ruth, very interesting way that the book closes, what we notice, first of all, are just a couple of things here. First, as Stephen Dempster has pointed out, he teaches at a seminary over in New Brunswick, not far from us, as he has pointed out, this is the only genealogy that closes a book in the entire Old Testament, that's probably a very significant fact. It's the only book in the Old Testament that closes with a genealogy. And then second, what we notice here, if we look at this carefully, is that there are 10 people in this genealogy. 10 people. Now, there are a couple of other places in the Old Testament where we get a very, two very important 10-person genealogies. The first is Genesis 5, where we go there from Adam down through Seth and Enoch, finally to Noah. That's a very important 10-person genealogy in Genesis 5. And then the other important 10-person genealogy is found in Genesis 11, where we go from Shem all the way down to Abram. Both of those 10-person genealogies in Genesis are crucially important, we need to see this, crucially important in terms of the salvation history for all of us, including us Gentiles, 
God began to work all of that out, beginning way back with Adam. But now as the book of Ruth closes, this book we've been studying, we get this other crucially important 10-person genealogy that, of course, this genealogy has direct implications for our own salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. This genealogy links the family of Judah with Boaz and then David. Well, what else do we notice about these last five verses of Ruth? We need to note carefully that the person who is in the seventh symbolically whole position in this genealogy, the the seventh person is none other than Boaz. Boaz is seventh here and not by accident. Seven is the number of completeness. It is the number of wholeness in the Old Testament. So Boaz is seventh. And then notice also how massively important is the person who occupies the tenth and final position in this ten-member genealogy. David is that person, of course. The final person, the person who terminates this ten-person genealogy, just like in those other two Genesis genealogies that we mentioned, the tenth and final members of those genealogies, respectively, were Noah, very important, and Abram. And here, it's David in position number 10. None of this is by accident. David, of course, will become the outstanding king in Israel, the one by whom All other succeeding kings in Judah will be measured. As soon as the original readers of Ruth saw that name David there in the close of this book of Ruth, they would be thinking, automatically they'd be thinking in royal terms, in terms of kingship. Isn't it interesting to consider And that slide got a little messed up there. But isn't it interesting to consider that the very last verse of the preceding book in the canon, the last verse of the book of Judges, punctuated the fact that there had been no king in Israel. And now in the very last verse of the next book of the canon, in the book of Ruth, we get the name David, which signifies kingship indeed in Israel. Again, friends, for the time that I am the preaching pastor here at Snowden, I want to encourage you to learn to read your Bible in a whole canonical, a whole canonical sort of a way. We are learning to read our Bibles, yes, in individual sentences and in individual paragraphs, even in terms of individual books, but also across books, across testaments even, in the way that God has clearly designed this book to be read. Well, what else can we say about this 10-person genealogy that closes the book of Ruth? I think it can be instructive for us. We're going to do this briefly, but it can be instructive for us if we make an attempt, some sort of attempt, to put faces to these names just a little bit. So the first person in this genealogy is Perez. We met Perez a little bit last Sunday. 
Perez, of course, was Judah's son by Tamar. Perez came into the world in a sort of questionable uh, circumstance. As his mother had pretended to be a prostitute in order to get a child from her father-in-law, Judah, and Judah likewise, of course, had made some very uh, suspect choices in that whole affair, no question about it. So this genealogy at the end of the Ruth begins in an interesting sort of a way. It doesn't begin with Judah. It begins with Perez in a sort of cloudy sort of a way. And then it proceeds to Perez's son, Hezron. Hezron is notable because he went with Judah, with the family, in the original party of the Israelites who had traveled into the foreign land of Egypt uh, toward the, right at the end of the book of Genesis. Verse 19, Hezron in turn fathered Ram. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about Ram, other than the fact that maybe he was Ram tough. Sorry, that's a terrible joke. We don't know a whole lot about him, other than the fact that he was born while the family was still in Egypt. Ram fathered Aminadab, so now we're still in Egypt at this point in Old Testament history. The interesting note about Aminadab is that according to what we find in Exodus 6, verse 23, Aminadab was the father-in-law of Aaron, the high priest. Aminadab's daughter married Aaron, the high priest. So that's his sort of claim to fame. Verse 20, Aminadab fathered Nashon. Now, Nashon ended up being a very prominent leader within the tribe of Judah. There is a story in Jewish Midrash, in ancient Jewish interpretation, that says that it was Nashon who first entered the Red Sea as the Hebrew people had their backs to the wall facing the fearsome Egyptian army. The Midrashic story says that it was Nashon who first walked into the Red Sea and went up to the water where it was covering up almost up to his nose. And it was that point, so the story goes, when the sea parted. Nashon. Well, be that as it may, we're still here in verse 20. Nashon fathered Salmon. Uh, we are tempted to read that as salmon, but uh, technically it's Salmon. And according to what we find in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 that we read earlier, Salmon's wife was none other than Rahav or Rahab of Jericho, the Canaanite Gentile woman, that Canaanite prostitute who later came to faith in Yahweh. Rahab was the one who had hidden, of course, hidden the Israelite spies, and Rahab is the mother of Boaz. And then to round out the genealogy, we get the names, of course, Obed, Jesse, and David, who we've already talked about a little bit. But isn't this interesting here as we consider it? The first person in this genealogy, Perez, came about due to a situation where Judah had understood his daughter-in-law Tamar to be a prostitute. And then the seventh person in this genealogy, Boaz, comes about by Rahab, who had been 
a Canaanite prostitute. And all of this, friends, all of this issues forth and forward and leads right up to David, who incidentally, if we remember the story of David, he had, he had a very important son named Solomon by Bathsheba, another very interesting story on its own, until, by and by, many generations later, we get our Lord Jesus Christ, the reason we are doing this YouTube service right now. Jesus comes via this somewhat checkered lineage. Isn't that something? Tamar, in Genesis 38, encountering disaster, no children, and then deceiving Judah, and Judah sinning as he thinks he's going into a prostitute, and the result is that Perez is born. This whole chain of people here at the close of Ruth 4 begins under those questionable circumstances, but God, God sovereignly guides and plans and executes this entire lineage from start to finish. God overcomes Ruth's decade-long barrenness in order to bring Obed into the picture. And then, even when we get to David, it was so unlikely, wasn't it, that he would be chosen as king from amongst his brothers. David was certainly not the conventional choice because David was not the eldest of Jesse's sons, but rather the youngest. So I hope we can see here, even in these names, even in this section that closes the book of Ruth, I hope we can see the glory and the sovereign power of our God guiding and steering and directing and creating an entire line of people across the generations, across the course of history, and he's doing it in the midst, very important, in the midst of human failings and in the midst of human successes. He's doing all of this in the midst of human action for his overarching kingdom purposes. It is amazing to consider this. Our God is amazing. Those of you, the few of you who are here, say amen. Our God is amazing. And can we see, I hope we can see, how the chesed, the, the loving kindness that has been so wonderfully displayed in the lives of the human characters, Ruth and Boaz, that this chesed has ended up having astounding repercussions that span across the generations. We talked about that last week. I really hope we can see that, and I hope that the Holy Spirit will be pleased to inspire us and to invigorate us by that fact that the common acts of loving kindness that we perform in our lives can have these cross-generational repercussions for the glory of God. Listen to the wise words of K. Lawson Younger here, a commentator on Ruth. He says this, quote, These final five verses of Ruth 
should instill hope in us. When we live a life of personal piety, doing hesed to others, loving one another within the community of faith, and loving our neighbors, there is the expectation, he says, there is the expectation that through God's sovereignty and providential care, such a life will have impacts that go on far beyond our lifetimes. Far beyond our lifetimes, close quote. And then Younger says this, which I think, this is very well stated. This would be a good one to to write out. You can pause the video and write it out if you want. Put it on your fridge. I think it's great. It's worth our consideration. He says this, quote, when common people act unselfishly toward each other in accordance with God's standards of hesed, they achieve uncommon results. I'm going to give that to you one more time. When common people act unselfishly toward each other in accordance with God's standards of chesed, standards of loving kindness, they achieve uncommon results. That's one to take to the bank as we read the book of Ruth. Well, many decades after Ruth and Boaz, God came to their great-grandson's prophet, a person named Nathan. Nathan was David's prophet in the kingly court, and God gave Nathan a word that Nathan was then to go and relay to David. That word from the Lord confirmed that the Lord would build a house for his own name, a lineage and a kingdom for his own reputation, for the worldwide spread of his own Chesed. And that lineage and kingdom would come through David. And it would be an eternal kingdom, not just a temporary transient kingdom, but an eternal kingdom. As Paul House summarizes, it would be through the work of the Davidic king, the one in the line of David, that God's mercy would be known in all the countries that Yahweh had created. It is not by accident that the very first words of the entire New Testament, the very first words of the entire New Testament link the person of Jesus Christ all the way back to David and then further back to Abraham. Matthew 1, we read it earlier, it begins with that long genealogy taking us from Abraham through David all the way to the birth of Jesus, and included in that genealogy are not only the names Boaz, Ruth, and Obed, not only those names, but also the names of women like Tamar, Rahab, and the wife of Uriah, who of course is Bathsheba. Isn't it rather peculiar, as we look at that genealogy, isn't it rather odd that in that long section that opens the entire New Testament and which leads up to our Lord, in that whole section, we don't get the names of the Old Testament women we might expect to be listed there, names like Sarah, Rebecca, 
Rachel and Leah, we don't get those names. Instead, we get questionable Tamar, Moabite Ruth, Canaanite prostitute Rahab, and the Hittite wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba. Why these women? Again, the reason is not far from us, friends. The reason, simply put, is that it was God's pleasure (laughs) to employ these particular people in the earthly lineage of his son. God, in his grace, in his grace, chose to bring about his kindness incarnate, kindness on two legs. He chose to bring Jesus, the fleshly person of our Savior Jesus, about through this selection of ordinary sinners from various people groups, each of whom had various issues. This is an incredibly hopeful reminder, as I read this, for a guy like me to know that God in heaven uses ordinary, faulty, sinful people to to accomplish his great purposes. Isn't that wonderful news? Well, now, as we wrap up this sermon series, I want to return briefly, just very briefly, to one of the primary themes of the book of Ruth, that theme of redemption. We had to hit it one more time. Redeeming the helpless out of their difficulty. And I just want to remind you as we close of the character of our God, the character of our God. It's good for us, I think, to reflect on what Psalm 72 says about our God and about his redeeming ways in particular. So Psalm 72, verses 12 through 14, it says that God, listen, God delivers the needy when he calls, listen to the character of your God here, delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. That's our God. God has pity, it says, pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He, and here's our word, redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. God saw the helplessness, the neediness, the weakness of his people when they were enslaved hopelessly as they were existing there under the tyranny of Egypt. And so God came along to Moses and he said this to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Well, God, of course, if we know the story, he would redeem them. He would bring them out of their helplessness. And then in the very next verse of that same passage, God talked about, in the very next verse, he talked about his desire to be in relationship with the people that he would redeem. God said in Exodus 6 verse 7, 
I'll redeem you. And then he says, I will take you to be my people. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So catch that, friends. Catch that. In these two verses, Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, we learn that God redeems for relationship. He redeems for relationship. Boaz redeemed Ruth. Boaz carried through with all the legal requirements to take Ruth and Naomi out of their dire predicament, and that redemption gave way to deepened relationship, didn't it? As Boaz married Ruth then and had children with her. Jesus our Lord appears on earth, incarnate, in the flesh, on the earth. He takes on the flesh of his people. He goes willingly to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to suffer enormous human cruelty in order to do what? In order to ransom sons and daughters for relationship. Christ's redemption is for relationship. Just listen to the chain of things in 1 Peter 3.18. Listen to what it says very carefully. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the substitution. And then it says, that he might bring us to God, that he might bring us to God. You see, redemption was not simply an end unto itself. The cross of Jesus Christ was carried out for the purpose of relationship, that he might bring us to God, that, that people who were formerly enslaved to sin might be adopted as sons and daughters, and brought into the family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Glory. Well, friends, with that, I really sincerely hope that our 12 Sundays in the book of Ruth has been edifying to you. I know it's been edifying to me to be under this word again. And I hope that the Holy Spirit really has been speaking and moving amongst us. I hope we've had ears to hear. And may Jesus, our better than Boaz, our Redeemer, our Lord, may he be with us this week as we very purposely and very proactively carry out acts of hesed toward each other, toward our neighbors, and as, as we do that in the power and in the love that he supplies. Let's pray together. Father, you are beyond good to us, Lord. We have come through a year that in many, many ways in, in, in uh, various circumstances for us has been very trying and very difficult. But Lord, you have been faithful. Uh, it, for some of us, you've been just sort of quietly, ever-present, faithful. For others of us, you have um, shaken us up a little bit when we needed to be. Uh, Lord, you comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Uh, that's what you do. And Lord, we're just thankful for your presence in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that as this book of Ruth has ended now, 
that your Holy Spirit would just impress it upon us and cause us to animate and to act in loving kindness to others and in faithfulness to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hello again. We've come now to the final episode on our sermon series on the book of Ruth. Uh, and this actually will indeed be the final 1225 live episode for now. In yesterday's sermon, which was the final sermon on our study of the book of Ruth, we touched on the fact that Ruth chapter 1 and Ruth chapter 4 sort of mirror one another in various ways. And that is a purposeful, structural thing that the writer of Ruth has created, put together. Today, all I want to do is further sort of expand a little bit on that idea of the mirroring that happens within the book of Ruth. So the basic idea is that Ruth chapter 1 mirrors uh, Ruth chapter 4 in certain respects, and Ruth chapter 2 mirrors Ruth chapter 3 in certain respects as well. So here goes, here's a little bit on, on what that looks like. In Ruth chapter 1, right near the beginning, verses 2 through 4 of Ruth 1, we have uh, an abundance of names that are given to us. While over in Ruth chapter 4, as the book closes, the last five verses give us another abundance of names. In fact, more names than we had in that section of Ruth chapter 1. And then another parallel between Ruth 1 and Ruth 4, in Ruth chapter 1, as the chapter develops, we have the development of the idea of Naomi being empty, while over in Ruth 4, Naomi is filled, her emptiness is filled, of course, by the advent of Ruth's baby, Obed. In Ruth chapter 1, we have a crossroads sort of moment, a moment of decision as Orpah, there on the road, decides that she will return to Moab as Naomi and Ruth travel forward. Well, in Ruth chapter 4, we also have a crossroads, a moment of decision, when Mr. So-and-so decides that he will not redeem Naomi and Ruth with her. And of course, just like Orpah in chapter 1, Mr. So-and-so then drops out of the story altogether. So that's just a little bit about the mirroring between Ruth chapter 1 and Ruth chapter 4. Again, the same thing happens between Ruth chapter 2 and Ruth chapter 3. So in Ruth chapter 2 verses 2 and 3, Ruth explains to Naomi what she is going to do, going in and into the field to glean, and Naomi says, go. In Ruth chapter 3, Naomi again says to Ruth, go. But this time, Naomi explains to Ruth what she must do as she goes to the threshing floor. For Ruth's part, in 2, 3, chapter 2, verse 3, we get the phrase, so she set out. And then in mirror style, in chapter 3, verse 6, we get uh, the narrator again saying, so she went down, in reference to Ruth. In Ruth 2, verse 5, Boaz asks a question about the identity of Ruth. He is then told, uh, filled in, concerning the identity of Ruth. And then again, in chapter 3, in verse 9, in mere style, we have Boaz asking Ruth herself, Who are you? Uh, in which case, again, Ruth explains to Boaz who she is. 
In chapter 2, verse 8, Boaz invites Ruth to stay in the, in the same proximity where he is. Uh, he also invokes Yahweh's name in Ruth's ears, and he gives Ruth food. Well, in mere style, in chapter 3, verse 13 and following, uh, Boaz, again, invites Ruth to stay. He invokes Yahweh's name in her ears, and he provides her with food. And then in 2.18 and following, Ruth returns to Naomi, presents her with food, and then Naomi gives some counsel to Ruth, and it happens again in chapter 3. Ruth returns to Naomi, Na uh, Naomi is presented with food, and Naomi ends up giving Ruth her counsel. So as we read this book of Ruth, we can begin to see this structured, gorgeous, purposeful, architecture. Uh, this book has been put together very expertly and ingeniously uh, by the writer of Ruth. We get the distinct impression that the Hebrew authors were masters in their craft and looking at the broader picture as we know about the divine authorship of the book of Ruth, uh, we can see all of this really as being God's craftsmanship. And with that we're going to leave it there. Thank you for joining me in these episodes, and I sincerely hope that your time in Ruth has been as blessed as my time in Ruth has been. And God bless you. Take good care of yourself, and we hope to see you in this context again. I'm not sure when, but hopefully soon. 